Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. We hope you're finding these war bulletins valuable. A quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding app Patreon from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. In the week that the US Congress voted through an unprecedented massive aid package to Ukraine of $40 billion, we wanted to discuss the state of the NATO alliance and wider global relations. To do that, I'm delighted to be joined by Lord Ricketts, Peter Ricketts. Peter is one of the preeminent national security officials in this country. He was Britain's ambassador to France. He was our permanent representative to NATO. He was chairman of the Joint Intelligence Committee, the National Security Advisor, and he was also head of the Foreign Office. So he brings almost unrivaled experience to this question. Peter, welcome. Thank you very much, Arthur. Peter, there's a lot we could talk about, um, but I wanted to start with NATO, if, if we may. And we're recording this at a time when a remarkable series of developments has occurred in the past week. Sweden and Finland, both neutral countries for decades in Finland's case and for hundreds of years in Sweden's case, they've both applied to join the alliance. Uh, what is the significance of this development? Well, first of all, it's a huge turnaround for NATO. Two or three years ago, if you remember, we had President Macron saying it was brain dead. Uh, and we had um, Donald Trump openly dismissive of the value of NATO. Putin's war has obviously made it clear that NATO is absolutely front and centre for uh, the security of all its members, including the UK. And Finland and Sweden, uh, when I was the UK ambassador to NATO in the early 2000s, they were very effective partner nations. In fact, when we sat around the table with NATO ambassadors and partner countries, about 50 of us, they were some of the most effective. You wouldn't have known that they they were not members of NATO, but they were proud non-aligned countries, as you say, Sweden's case for 200 years, they bring to NATO serious defense capacity, a serious defense mindset, um, and a real commitment. They feel that the security situation around them has changed so dramatically that they have made a 180-degree turn in their security policy just in a few weeks on the basis of a pretty in-depth national 
consultation. So that is a very significant moment for NATO. It gives NATO a much longer boundary with Russia. Mm. Uh, the Finnish boundary with Russia is, I think, um, 800 miles long. Yeah. Um, but it shows the, the value and the importance of NATO at a time when European security has never been more under threat than, than since probably than since the Second World War. And there's a difficult conundrum uh, with all of this, which is, of course, that NATO is a defensive alliance. Uh, NATO has never made any sort of f- offensive move towards Russia. Um, but it is also undoubtedly the case that if you're sitting in Moscow, it looks like this thing is getting bigger and becoming more powerful. And particularly if you add Finland to the, you know, the NATO map, is it um, understandable, I'm not going to use the word reasonable, from a Russian perspective to view that with some alarm? Only if they have accepted the propaganda they've been fed for years by Putin. Yeah. Putin himself came to power in 2000. And in 2002, he came to a NATO-Russia summit in Rome, uh, which I was at as a foreign office um, guy, yeah. uh, at which we launched a new NATO-Russia partnership. And Putin was then very happy to sign up to some very positive, forward-looking language. Three of the former Warsaw Pact had already joined NATO by that point. That didn't seem to worry him. So sometime between then to now when he sees NATO as an outright adversary, something has happened. And it's not NATO that's changed. I think it's Putin that's changed. I think he's become much more uh, paranoid, much more obsessed with having a buffer around Russia's borders and the status of Ukraine. But to say Russia is encircled is completely ridiculous. If you look at the size of Russia, only a tiny part of its um, overall borders face NATO. Mm. Uh, so it's it's Russian paranoia. Of course, we have to take that seriously. Of course, we have to show that NATO is absolutely not threatening Russian interests or Russian territory. Um, but Russia has got to come to terms with the fact that as a result of what Putin has done, NATO is now stronger and bigger uh, and more united. And it's definitely um, a bizarre irony that, uh, and a tragic irony that Putin launched a war against one country, Ukraine, partly on the basis of this perceived NATO threat. And he's ended up then joining two physically very large countries with, as you said, capable militaries um, uh, to Ukraine as a, as a result of his actions. And not just that, um, he has um, persuaded the West to reinforce its troop levels um, in the eastern part of NATO. Uh, there are now, I think, 100,000 American forces in Europe, many more than a few years ago. Yeah. Um, 40,000 of them are under direct NATO command. So he's made NATO much more um, on the alert, uh, more robust and resilient in um, its defensive stance towards Russia. None of that is in Russia's interests, of course, as you say. He might have thought of that before he started. Incidentally, Arthur, I really don't buy this idea that Putin has been aggressive on Ukraine because he genuinely fears um, that NATO is has aggressive intentions. I think it's much more about his paranoia about Ukraine and his weird sort of mental state where he really wants to believe NATO, Ukraine shouldn't exist. Ukraine yes. should be folded back into Mother Russia. So it's much more about that. I think the NATO um, threat business was much more propaganda um, to yeah. cloak um, you know, what was a straightforward territorial grab. 
Peter, it's possible we're getting ahead of ourselves here because in this discussion of Sweden and Finland potentially joining NATO, uh, we need to talk about the position of Turkey and President Erdogan, who seems to be uh, rather digging into a position that he's he's not happy to see them join. What, what's your perception of this? Yes, Turkey has seen an opportunity, I think, frankly. Arthur. I think every other member state of NATO would be delighted to welcome Finland and Sweden in, yeah. in short order. Um, President Erdogan's never one to miss an opportunity. Mm. He has a long-standing grudge against the Swedes in particular for their harboring of a number of PKK activists, the Kurdish activists, who yeah. he thinks are terrorists and should be deported to Turkey. And he has jumped on this opportunity to use Turkish leverage as the, the last standout country um, to try and extract, um, uh, no doubt, some concessions, particularly from Sweden. My own feeling is that this is such a strategic move, Finland and Sweden. It's got such strong backing from the White House. We saw that with President Biden this week. Um, I really don't think that Turkey will try and block it in the long term. I think they will be about extracting a price for their um, affirmative vote, which NATO needs, of course. Yeah. Uh, this would be to stand in the way of history in a which a way which would be dangerous for Turkey. I mean, it would further damage its relationship with the Americans, which is not good anyway. No. So I think we're probably in a temporary period of bargaining rather than a long-term block. Yeah. I mean, that sounds reasonable, but of course, it's quite hard to imagine what the deal is because one thing we can be sure is that Sweden, you know, a country with a very strong human rights record and completely independent courts, is not about to hand over... Um, people that they probably regard as genuine political asylees um, to a country such as Turkey, which has a pretty patchy record on human rights. Uh, I quite agree. And I, I don't know either quite what the what the bargaining chips will be here. It won't be the independence of Sweden's judiciary. I'm sure you're right. No. I think Sweden also um, imposed an arms uh, export ban on Turkey uh, two or three years ago, maybe there can be something negotiated there. Most of all, I think it'll be um, uh, whatever the Turks are looking for from Washington. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that um, access to uh, US uh, weapons, the F-35 fighter in particular, which I think was cut off over the, um, the previous uh, human rights concerns in Turkey, yes. those sort of things would be high, high value bargaining chips for Erdogan. And so maybe the deal will come more between Washington and Ankara. Yeah. It's a fascinating insight into the dynamics of of these complex uh, alliances, where you know the thing that the president is saying may not actually be the thing that he's concerned about. Yes, correct. And and what has made NATO different over the decades, and I've known it since I went there as a young diplomat to the UK delegation in the nineteen seventies, is is the presence of the Americans. Yeah, you know there is one dominant, indispensable ally. And when there are problems in NATO, in the end, it's usually Washington that uses its muscle to sort it out. Um, and that makes it different, for example, from the EU, where there is no one dominant player. Yeah. And I think in this case as well, probably that's what will happen. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit, if we may, about that, the indispensable role of, of America. Now, as you observed earlier, uh, NATO's had a bit of a fillip because the the role of a alliance which exists to protect European security. No one needs to explain the need for it right now. Um, but it is it is certainly the case that within uh, Republican circles in America, and certainly 
around Donald Trump. There, there are those that question the value, you know, America arguably propping up um, European security. And it's worth remembering that President Obama also uh, made these points. So this is not a uniquely uh, sort of right-wing position to hold. Uh, you know, I think Obama used the term free riders to to refer to some of the European countries when it came to defense issues. So in a scenario where it, it's by no means clear that President Biden will be a president after 2024, and certainly you've got, you know, midterm elections coming up in America, is it a given that NATO continues to have this sort of core anchor position there of of the um of the US. Um, a couple of points on that. Mm. First of all, a lot of the fundamental American problem with the Europeans and NATO was that the Europeans weren't spending enough on defense. Yeah. And what we have seen another of the uh, consequences of Putin's action is a major rise in commitments to spend on defense, particularly in Germany. And Germany was the freest of the free riders, if you like, before. Yes. Uh, I think their defense spending got down to 1.1% of GDP at one point. Um, Scholz's commitment to spend 100 billion euros quickly on re-equipping the Bundeswehr and then bringing German spending up to 2% of GDP in the long term. And that's a massive change. Yeah. Other countries as well are boosting their defense spending. So I think the perfectly justified American gripe that the Europeans weren't spending enough on defense, um, that in a way is water under the bridge now. The other point is that Actually, in Congress, there is very strong support for U.S. membership of NATO, including on the Republican side. So although people around Trump, yes, may continue to um, harbor doubts about NATO, I think they would find it very hard in Congress, even a Republican Congress, to push through anything dramatic like, like American departure from NATO. And in a way, I think, as you said at the beginning, uh, the fact that we now have the biggest war in Europe since the Second World War shows the enduring value of NATO. So I think we can put to bed concerns about America pulling out. Of course, how Europe spends all this money on defense is going to be very important, including in Washington. If it's spent in inefficient ways, if it's consumed in unnecessary duplicatory um, command structures and so on with NATO, then that won't be impressive in Washington. If it's spent in ways which genuinely increase Europe's capacity to contribute to the overall defense, then I think it can only help the American debate about NATO. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Peter, I noted at the beginning that you also served as our ambassador to France. Of course, President Macron uh, ruffled a lot of feathers when he referred to NATO as brain dead. Arguably, I think he was trying to make a different point that, that perhaps got lost. But anyway, we might talk about that. But one of the things that Macron is very interested in is the idea of Europe and the European Union upscaling its own defence capabilities. And this is a very old debate. I remember 
literally, uh, I think when when you were the permanent representative in in NATO coming to Brussels once and, and that discussion was on the table. Um, so where do you see that discussion going now? Because is some of this money will be spent on what certainly from a Washington perspective looks like duplication. You know, in Brussels, you've got the EU and NATO and they're both building up uh, structures. Yes, I, as you say, it's a long and, and convoluted tale, this yeah. idea of European defence, Europe taking on more of a direct defence role. Um, over the last 20 years, Europe has built up a capacity to use military forces, um, not in uh, conflict, but in peacekeeping and training and capacity building, and has a number of missions going on around the world, relatively low-level missions. None of that, I think, is a problem for the Americans. They see that as, you know, as a, as a contribution to the overall effort. The French have long had uh, an aspiration that Europe should have the capacity to stand on its own feet in defense terms against the day, which they've always thought will come sometime when the Americans you lose interest in Europe and, and pull back from Europe. And of course, Trump gave that anxiety, you know, even greater force. And so this idea that Macron has promoted what he calls European strategic autonomy, um, I don't think that's a problem for Washington, as long as it means extra military capacity, filling some of the gaps that European armed forces have, and usable either you know, in a European context or in NATO. If it becomes autonomy from America, kind of separate European military structure alongside NATO with all the duplication of that, then that is a problem. Yeah. It would be a problem for the UK as well, of course. And I think most European countries don't want that. Um, certainly, if you live in Poland or, or the Baltic states, you know, NATO will be the absolute bedrock of your defense. And therefore, I think a lot of pressure will be to, to put this strategic autonomy idea more in the direction of having enough um, sovereign capacity in Europe in the technology area, for example, not to be dependent on China, not to be dependent on Russia for energy. Uh, all that is underway already. Um, and to have more effective defense forces. And all of that can be squared with a strong and vibrant NATO and American support. Um, the tone, When the tone shifts towards a European army, which I've never believed is at all you know, feasible, then uh, hackles rise in Washington. But for the moment, I think the China threat and the Russia threat mean that the idea of greater independence for Europe in technology and security is, is going down a path which is compatible with uh, working with America and the transatlantic alliance. Yeah. And there, in, in that um, sort of rather knotty uh, set of debates lies uh, our own country. And Peter, of course, you published a, a book which I could recommend to everyone, Hard Choices, The Making and Unmaking of Global Britain, uh, published by Atlantic. Uh, the title uh, says, says quite a lot, but one of the hard choices Britain has to make is how we interact with the European Union as a sort of geopolitical and security actor. Uh, we, we're we already seeing that the challenges of our interaction on the trading question and the Northern Ireland Protocol and so on. Uh, but at the moment, if I'm not mistaken, we basically don't have any formal basis on which we interact with Europe on these kind of geopolitical and security questions. No, you're quite right. And thank you for the plug. Um... Uh, my central argument is that Britain is most effective in the world when we work with our closest partners and allies, rather than pursuing a sort of exceptionalist, independent path, trying to pretend we're a great power that can act alone. 
NATO. It's fine. Britain is a is a strong and, and a central member of NATO. But you're quite right. There was an offer from the EU as part of the Brexit negotiations that we could maintain a close and organised cooperation on foreign affairs and security because they recognise that uh, the UK is a major defence and security power, uh, a global foreign policy power, and it would be uh, in the EU's interest to maintain a close relationship on those subjects. The British government turned that down for reasons I've never quite been able to fathom. And so at the moment, all we have is sort of hole in the corner, rather ad hoc uh, discussions, for example, about coordinating sanctions on Russia, which is not at all satisfactory. So I think as we do move away from perhaps the, the, the most angry, the most adversarial approach to the EU, the first area of building back, in my mind, would be in this area of foreign policy, where we ought to be able to organise some sort of regular dialogue, not just on sanctions, but on the whole set of issues that Russia, uh, the Russian aggression raises, yeah. energy, climate, long-term policy towards Russia, policy towards China, all these things, we ought to be having a regular dialogue with the EU. Um, it would be welcomed in Brussels and European capitals if the UK government offered that. I don't think it's going to happen in the short term, but it has to be the area where we first begin to reconnect the pipes, as it were, between Britain and the EU. Yeah. And importantly, um, unlike some of these very knotty trade questions, none of the kind of shibboleths of sovereignty, European Court of Justice, none of those those really difficult uh, issues would be transgressed by doing this, would they? Correct. Britain could be invited in to have regular consultations on foreign policy. We could be invited in to this sort of work going on among EU capitals to improve Europe's defence capacity. There are various working groups going on in different projects there. And I don't think it has quite the same ideological baggage as trade and fisheries and agriculture. So it's a question of political will. If the government wanted to do it, uh, it would easily be done and it wouldn't require changing treaties or negotiating new formal agreements. And I really do think it should be done. Yeah. We haven't really talked about the war itself in Ukraine. Uh, neither you or I come from a military background, but as as observers of the conflict unfolding and from your perspective, Peter, someone, you know, you, you've had a lot to do with NATO over the years. Uh did NATO overestimate the Russian military? Well, I think, yes, looking from the outside, it did. But it's, of course, much better to overestimate than underestimate. And all the indicators I think NATO had, I mean, the rhetoric of President Putin to start with, but all the indicators about the size and the claims that Russia had modernized its armed forces and in cyberspace and what they called hybrid warfare um, I think probably led us to believe that this was a capable professional armed forces. And in fact, what we've seen in Ukraine is that they're nothing like that. Yeah. Um, part of this is that um, there was no leadership from the top. Putin would never even accept that he was committing his forces to war. And so the young conscripts that were sent, I think, had no idea that they were going to Ukraine and they were going into combat. Uh, that's not a great way to start. And Putin is learning the hard lesson, which you know, we've learned in Iraq, for example, that it is extremely hard to uh, invade and occupy a country and be faced with people who are fighting for uh, protecting their families, uh, you know, and, and their towns and their cities. And the kudos, the myth that Russia has a super capable armed forces, I think that's been exploded by this. Mm. 
That, of course, pushes Putin into a corner, which is dangerous for a Russian leader. But he's also had to scale back his ambitions dramatically already. And now he's having to scramble, I think, to find a kind of minimal face-saving exit from this massive strategic mistake he's made. Yeah. And it's if we look now, it, it's not unreasonable to suppose that uh, the Ukrainian military will be able to drive Russia out of the core territory of Ukraine. I'm, I'm putting Crimea to one side now. So as a diplomat, uh, what what do you think might be the potential ending of this conflict? Because in the end, it, it, it will it will fall to a some sort of diplomatic solution, presumably. Presumably, not necessarily. Um, I mean, I think my conclusion at the moment is that, well, first of all, we have to be very careful not to be setting war aims in a war that we are not fighting. Um, you know, we have to align carefully behind uh, President Zelensky and if he's prepared to settle for a, a deal, then we should support that. And if not, then we shouldn't be pressing him. So I think a negotiated solution is obviously the best outcome. I think it's possible that this thing basically stagnates um, into a stalemate, an angry stalemate, where the Russians are left holding on to more or less what they had in February. Uh, Zelensky hasn't accepted that formally, but it becomes a kind of de facto situation. And we live with a basically frozen conflict in Ukraine, with most of Ukraine united, independent, supported by the West, but with angry pockets of resistance in the East. That's far from an ideal outcome. I think it's entirely possible from where we are now that, that that's you know in the end where things work out. It's far from an ideal outcome, but it was, of course, as you know, the situation normal from 2014 to 2022, and and most of most of us in Europe didn't think too much about it. Yes, exactly. Uh, and it's more or less the situation in Georgia as well, yeah. where the Russians went in and occupied um, two provinces of Georgia uh, in 2008, are still sitting there. I don't think the Georgians have ever formally accepted that. Um, and, you know, the Russians are quite expert in these frozen conflicts. Um, you keep the situation unstable. You have the option of stirring it up when you want to, cooling it down when you choose to. Uh, and it's a useful form of pressure on the country concerned. And that maybe is about the best outcome the Russians can hope to get out of this. But they've lost massive amounts of reputation, of course, economic damage. And I think in the scenario I paint, um, there's a strong case for maintaining strong sanctions on Russia for the foreseeable future. Um, if I'm right, then you know this foreshadows a continuing long-term hostile relationship between Russia and the West and a Ukraine, which is going to need a great deal of Western support, you know, at least for the medium term. Yeah. And of course, as you rightly noted, Russia is a bit of an expert at frozen conflicts. If you look around the periphery of Russia, you mentioned Georgia, there's Transnistria, there's Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, you know, there, there's a long list of these. And, and it, it's almost a sort of signature of the, the former Soviet Union geopolitical space. Yes, I think Putin's ideal is a buffer zone of weak states um, with a degree of Russian influence in them uh, all around uh, his borders, you know, separating Russia from the West. And uh, I mean, I don't know how President Zelensky will, will handle it, but I think he believes quite rightly that he has basically won this war. He's come out best in this war so far. Yeah. So I don't see him sitting down at a table and signing a grand peace deal with Russia, uh, which um, gives Russia um, some benefits in terms of right to occupy part of his country. Sure. That's why I think a, a 
although we'd all like to see a negotiated peace settlement, I don't think it's likely. And I really hope that other European leaders don't all start scrambling to Kiev to put pressure on Zelensky to settle. I think there's a little bit of sign in Italy that the uh, political forces there are beginning to press Mario Draghi to um, no no longer send arms supplies, to perhaps um, go to Kiev and press Zelensky for an early peace. I really think that that, um, that the British should counsel strongly against that. Yes. Well, it's it's interesting you mentioned Italy. Little noticed, I think, I'm sure you noticed it, that Italy presented its peace plan for Ukraine to the UN Secretary General. I think they did that yesterday. Um, I see. You know, this seems rather peculiar. Why, why does Italy uh, regard itself as needing to uh, sort of take this conflict, which is clearly it is for Ukraine to decide where it goes, uh, in this direction? Well, indeed. I mean, I think you'd probably find if you looked that Italy is one of the countries that is rather dependent on Russian um, uh, energy supplies. Um, the long, a long tradition of <clears throat> Russian influence in Italian politics. Yeah. And I fear we will see more of this rather than less. As the pressure comes on, the pressure from energy prices, the pressure from the looming food crisis, which is something else, which is you know the next um, uh, impact of this crisis globally indeed um, i think we're going to find more and more countries beginning to say well yes of course we support the ukrainians but my goodness you know now it's beginning to hurt us and don't we need to be finding a solution as we sort of get towards the end of our time i'm i'd love to look globally and and of course um this war has had global impacts, um, not the least of which is pushing Russia and China closer together and perhaps making China think differently about its own uh, ambitions with regard to Taiwan. What's your perspective on that? I think that's right. Um, I think we are seeing a fracturing of the um, global system into basically spheres of influence, uh, essentially an American-dominated one and a Chinese-dominated one. That's true economically in terms of supply chains, uh, increasingly in terms of the internet as well. And this war has pushed Russia towards China, quite rightly. Um, I mean, that's not a good thing from uh, international point of view. I'm not sure it's a good thing either from Russia's point of view to have a relationship with China, a growing, increasingly dominant China, uh, and a weak, um, declining Russia um, is not going to be a comfortable place for Russia to be in the medium term, nor necessarily a very stable one. But I think that is the sort of global trend. And that presents issues for Britain and for Europe. Um, I've long felt that the tone of this government tends to be exceptionalist, that they believe Britain can carve out an independent foreign policy a sort of nostalgic return to great power status. Actually, I think Britain outside the EU does not have as much impact and influence um, in the world. And we need to be working closely both with the Americans and with the Europeans, even more so if we've got this fracturing going on um, right across economics, finance, commerce, um, and the data space as well. Uh, And I think the war has accentuated that. In a way, I think the COVID crisis accentuated that as well, because uh, it deepened the gulf between uh, China and the rest of the world. So all of that, I think we need to take real note of. The other thing that I find 
worrying from this crisis is that in many countries, it is seen as just another East-West spat, you know, Cold War Mark II, and not our concern. So if you're in India or in South Africa or in Brazil or in Mexico, um, you won't see this as anything to do with you, really. Whereas actually, it is everything to do with these countries. It's an assault on the rule of law, on the basic principles we agreed in the UN Charter in 1945. And it is having ripple effects, which are going to hurt all the economies in the world. Energy prices, food shortages, the poorest countries are going to feel the impact most seriously. And therefore, it is a global issue. And I think that one of the objectives of Western countries in the next months ought to be to try and mount a campaign to convince other countries that they too have a dog in this fight. They too need to be pressing Russia to stop this aggression, to open up the port of Odessa, get the food moving, um, and to step back from the brink. And the more Russia feels completely isolated, perhaps the more likely that is that something will happen. But at the moment, uh, it seems to be regarded by many countries as just another issue between Russia and the West, uh, and that you know they can stand aside. I think that's a very short-sighted position. Well, I think that is the perfect point to end this discussion. Peter, thank you so much uh, for talking to me. I, I always remembered you when you were running the Foreign Office as someone who spoke clearly and highly intelligently, and you've done that today, so thank you. Thank you very much, Sartha. Great pleasure to be with you. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.